Hallelujah. I just have a few minutes and then we have somebody that's going to speak to us by video as well this morning. And many of you already know him. His name is Dr. Del Tackett. But let me introduce our time together. Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I mentioned earlier the 39th anniversary of the decision of Roe versus Wade of the Supreme Court making abortion legal in the United States. And believe it or not, there's still a debate in our country about among scholars as to whether there's such a thing as truth. They're still debating this. Now, if you remember with Jesus standing in front of Pilate, what did he say? What is truth? It's still going on. Uh, one view is that truth does not exist, and everything is a matter of interpretation. You know, the founding fathers of our United States of America uh, did not hold to such a view, and neither do believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus declared in prayer to the Father, in John chapter 17, he said, uh, Father, your word is truth. So this message, if it has a title this morning, is the continuing battle for truth. The founders in the Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they, they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America was founded by men who believed in the right to life and that it applied to all people because this right was self-evidently bestowed and given by our Creator. When we observe the sanctity of human life Sunday once a year, we must recommit ourselves to the biblical truth that life is a gift from God. And it must be valued and protected as such. Now, I think it was when our twins were five years old. And I realized, and how old are you now? 32? Yeah, so it's been a few years, 27 years. 27 years ago, when Sanctity of Human Life Sunday was going on, was just getting started, I made a commitment. And so bear with me this morning. I'm keeping my commitment, which is a good thing, right? I said, Lord, as long as America's in trouble, and this is still an issue, I will not forget to remind us as a congregation of the importance of human life. And if it's done every year on the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, then so be that. That's it's pretty cool because it's like within days of their birthday. Their birthday's the, let's see, what is it? January the 19th. And so... And today is amazingly that the date of Roe versus Wade falls right on this day today, January 22nd. So I'm just keeping my commitment. And I'm thinking that today, as a nation, we must come to grips with the option and the opportunity that's afforded us in Deuteronomy chapter 30, if you put that up for us, which says in verse 19, This day I call the heavens and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you, and I've underlined this in my notes, you and your children may live. If you've read Deuteronomy, you know this follows Deuteronomy 28, 29, where God's talking about the blessings and the cursings, the blessings and the cursings. He says, I've said it before you. And he enjoins us, choose life. Tragically, as a culture, we have chosen death. Maybe you're unaware of this, but tomorrow, 3,700 people who are innocent 
will die. They'll be executed tomorrow. They've had no trial. They have no legal representation. They have no opportunity to defend themselves. Yet they will be executed in a very cruel and inhumane way. We can predict these horrible deaths with chilling accuracy because one human life in this country is destroyed every 20 seconds. When we add it up, it's about 1.2 million Americans every year. And over the past 39 years, some 54 million Americans have been murdered without mercy here in the United States. So we ought to mark this date down as a date that lives in infamy. You know, the full weight of 54 million, that's a big number. It's kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? We talk about, and maybe I can lighten the moment, because I feel the heaviness of it too, but it needs to weigh on us. If we could have that San Andreas fault shake that we always talk about, you know, the one where we end up with beachfront property. Actually, this we had a, a tragedy, uh, an earthquake of such magnitude that Arizona, California, which is the largest populated state in the United States, Arizona, California, Oregon, and Washington were split off and fell into the ocean. And, and the entire populations of all four states were to be dismissed at once. That is equal in number to those who have lost their lives in the last 39 years in this United States of America. It's the American Holocaust. It's a moral outrage that ought to make every Christian in this nation rise up with indignation. Let me give you some scriptures because we don't want to just have an opinion. We want to have a biblical foundation. This is a battle for truth, not opinion. The problem is opinion. In John chapter 1, verse 3, Jesus is given to us as the creator of life, where it simply says, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is the source and the sustainer of life. He is the creator of life. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, they're preaching this message, and in it the accusation is made, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus is the author Think of it. Put him in the position, the author of life. He sat down with the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit there, and said, we're going to pen. We're going to make a book. We're going to write. We're going to be an author. And he wrote us. Isaiah says, our names are inscribed on the palms of his hands. I know he's speaking to that to the children of Israel and as a nation. He's telling them how much he loves them, but he is the author. He decided to create us. In 1 John 1, 1, Jesus has given to us as the word of life, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. In John chapter 6, 35, Jesus declares himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. John 10, 10 Jesus has given to us as the abundant life. Where he tells us that the thief, the enemy, Satan, the hater of your soul, the hater of God, the fallen one, only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I've come 
that you might have life and have it to the full or have it abundantly. Jesus, the abundant life. In Colossians 3, 4, we're promised by the Apostle Paul, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is our life. Since the Lord Jesus is the source and sustainer of life, then it must be valued and protected. And I'm declaring today that specifically, because of the large scaleness of it, unborn life in the United States should be protected. It is not. In fact, it's been said that the womb is the most dangerous place in America. And I want to say too, I need to inject this probably more than once. I know statistically driven, I could tell you that probably six or seven out of every ten people in this room right now have been directly affected by abortion. Some of you maybe still are hurting. Some of you still have tragic memory. Some of you still have post-abortion stress. And I am here to declare to you the power of the living God. That all he asks when we sin... And taking a human life is murder, and therefore murder is sin. The Sixth Commandment says, Thou shalt not murder. We often say, Thou shalt not kill. But then this debate comes up about war and armies and fightings and things like this that happen. But specifically, the the commandment is, Thou shalt not murder. That is, you shall not plot to take another person's life who is innocent. There's a differentiation. And we're not going to go into that debate here about armies and wars and fighting. That goes on all over the world. It has been for since time started, amen, since men were on the earth, there's been fighting. And it will continue. But the taking of a human life is murder. And God said, thou shalt not murder. So what do you do when you sin? What do you do when you disobey God's commandments? You repent. You ask God to forgive you. Say, God, I'm not saying I made a mistake. I'm saying I sinned. I may not have known I was doing it at the time, but it haunts me. Forgive me. Let reconciliation come. Let restoration come to my life. Come and bring healing to the woundedness of my life. And that's what Jesus comes to do. This message isn't a message of condemnation. It's a message of hope. That for those of us who hurt because of abortion, there is salvation and redemption. God cares more than we understand. I've sat with so many who have lost babies and and infants and miscarriages. And, and, and often I say to them, because it strikes me so clearly, God the Father understands what it means to lose an only son. He knows the pain. He understands the grief. He's the only one who knows it as intimately as you might feel it now. So run to him. Don't run away from him. Run to the help that is available in the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. And I'm going to skip through those other ones. Psalm 139, do you have that? This is a classic portion of of the scripture that says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. The scholars on this passage say simply this, that in the Hebrew writing, 
there's a differentiation that says you created my inmost being. God is speaking of the spiritual nature of man in that piece. But when he says you knit me together, now he's talking about the physical part of man. So God knows us intimately in the spiritual side and in the physical side. And when he makes us and knits us together, in fact, uh, we were talking yesterday, the Surgeon General Coop, you remember him? He said, I don't get it. Uh, biologists and scientists and all these guys that do the studies, they all agree that in plant life and in animal life, when all the chromosomes come together as they should, then conception is happening right in that moment. And it's at the very beginning. He says the only time people get messed up and begin to debate is when we're talking about humans. He says, so here, let it be clear. 23 chromosomes leave the sperm. 23 chromosomes... Or meet the, they meet the egg. And in that moment, one cell is formed. He says, that is conception. It's never debated in animals and plants. It's only debated in humans. Why is that? Because there's an enemy who lies to the world and wants us not to believe that that is a human life. We want to call it something else. We want to call it tissue. We want to call it fetus. We want to call it something. Because we want to deny the Creator. That's our problem. The Bible's truth, and it tells us that God knew us when that first little cell happened. He knew us beforehand. Probably not a place for humor, but I was telling you know, they tell us that there's millions of little sperm that get set off to run for the A, right? You know what? Think about it. You won. You, you won the race. It's you. Think about it. That's how important you are. I mean, you beat out like 999,999 other people. And it's you. And here you are today. How amazing is that? Jeremiah 1.5, we know God told this to Jeremiah in an amazing revelation. He's encouraging Jeremiah in the preparation for his assigned ministry. He tells him right at the beginning of the book, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We sang it just a while ago. He knows my thoughts. He knows my every need. You know my name. Wow, he knew your name before your parents figured it out. We recently talked in the Advent passage of how Mary, pregnant with the Lord Jesus, comes to meet Elizabeth, who is pregnant. And as she enters the baby, John the Baptist leaps in her womb. Now Luke is the writer of the passage in the Gospel, and he uses the same Hebrew word for both babies in the womb and it's the same Hebrew word that you would use for a baby that's outside the womb. So he's equating and Luke's a doctor. So he's using a Hebrew word under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost saying the ones that are inside Mary and the one that's leaping inside Elizabeth or let's call them by the same terminology as one that would be standing next to us. It's a living human being. Psalm 127, verses 3 to 5, says that sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from Him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. God's view of children is that they are living human beings from the very moment of conception, which is as soon as those chromosomes meet and shake hands and join up and form the very first cell. That cell by the way, only needs a little nutrient and protection to
to become you. That's all it needs. Once that happens, you get the first self. All it needs is care, food, and protection. God forbids the killing of innocent human beings. And that extends to the infirm, the handicapped, uh, the elderly, those who cannot care for themselves. We're supposed to care for them. That's the truth. Now, I'm going to show you an extended segment from the Truth Project. It's from what's called Tour Number 9 on the state. And if you've not seen the Truth Project, it'll be a little bit foreign to you, so I'm going to introduce it briefly. Dr. Del Tackett, working with Focus on the Family, produced the Truth Project. And in this segment on the state, it's called Whose Law Is It? And we're going to jump in in the middle of it where he's talking about sphere sovereignty. And what this is addressing is that there are spheres in the social order that God created. Spheres like family. You can see them family and church and labor and community, God and man. And each one of these spheres has sovereignty that God has given it. But he's going to begin to speak with us about how the state, in making laws, if it doesn't submit itself to the laws of God, will then try and embrace and take over all of those spheres and usurp its authority and put us into a bad condition. The reason I show you this this morning is I want you to see him take us through. He's going to use a different kind of an illustration about the state stealing. And so remember that there's an equation here to the sanctity of human life, that he's going to show us a logical process of developing correct thinking and a biblical worldview. In this discussion, over 40 passages of the Bible are being dealt with as he's talking. He may not quote them all, but there are 40 passages. I have the, the, the documentation. 40 passages of the Bible are being dealt with just in this brief conversation. There are 12 of these tours, but this is just part of tour number nine. And the sanctity of human life sits squarely in this process of developing a biblical worldview about life. So um, let me give you Del Tackett for the next few minutes together. And here's something that he pointed out. I don't think he points this out in the video, but we all like the 1828 version of the Webster's Dictionary, right? You all have one? You wish you had one. Uh, But the 1828 version is really very godly. That's before it was rewritten. And it says this about law and politics and the state in definition. Law, politics, and the state are concerned with the preservation and improvement of people's morals. We're a long ways from that. In fact, that definition wouldn't even be accepted today. But that's what it was first designed for, to help us improve our moral condition. Here's Dell. This idea of sphere sovereignty is critical to God. I don't know if you all still watch cowboy movies or not. I think cowboy movies got a lot of stuff right. Do you know what I mean by cowboy movies? Westerns? Okay, good. Let me describe a scene for you and let's see if you can catch how well cowboy movies get this stuff right. All of a sudden, here's a scene. Someone is being chased through town by a posse. And the individual who's being chased comes around the corner, stops in front of the church, jumps off his horse, and runs into the church. 
The posse comes around the corner, screeches to a halt. Well, horses don't really screech to a halt. Stops. What does the posse do? Do they rush into the church? No. Isn't it amazing how we all know this intuitively? Why do they not rush into the church? Because early on in the life of this nation, when we set aside a town and set aside in that town a place for a church, that church did not sit on Texas soil. It sat on God's soil. And the Texas Ranger had no jurisdiction there. We understood the idea of sphere sovereignty. Something has changed. Something drastically has changed. So here is this design of the state. And I'll leave it to you to spend the time looking at it and studying the passages in the scripture to help understand how God has designed this social system. We'll look at a few and we're going to look primarily at one passage, Romans chapter 13. We're going to deal with the issue of the delegation of authority and submission and the purpose of the sphere, and we'll try to draw from Romans 13. Let's listen to it. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Okay, let's stop for a minute. What are some key words in this passage? Key words that are already familiar to us. Submit. Submit. Authority. Authority. The authorities that exist have come from where? Established by God. Established by God. Let's continue. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Boy, this is full of incredible design words. Help us understand this social system that God has given to us. Who is this King, what does Romans 13 say? God's servant. He is God's servant to do you good. Okay, let's look at this. We're going to deal with, first of all, in Romans chapter 13, this idea of delegation of authority and submission. Now, where do you suppose delegation of authority might come from? Where would we look, do you suppose, to find an understanding of delegation of authority? Again, remember, we must always turn and gaze upon the face of God. He is the ultimate source of all truth. And we're going to look to see, is this thing called delegation of authority found even within the Godhead? Delegation, submission. John 17, 
After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. What are we reading here? Delegation. Delegation of authority. Isn't this interesting? Delegation of authority already bound up in the triune nature of God. That the Father delegates that authority to Jesus. For you granted him authority over all people. 1 Corinthians, then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. God is the one who has delegated that. Interesting. By the way, I tell people who are in management, if you do not delegate authority, if you are a micromanager, you need to turn and gaze upon the face of God, who is a great delegator of authority. Subjection? Where does that come from? When he has done this, we continue in 1 Corinthians 15, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. We are subject to the king. Guess what? We see being subject to in the triune nature of God. We've seen it, have we not? Wives subject to their husbands. Bond slaves subject to their masters. People subject to their rulers. And guess what? We see it here within the triune nature of God. Being subject to someone is not negative. And we have duties, do we not? Pay taxes, pay respect, give honor, fear God, honor the king. This is interesting to remember what are children supposed to do to their parents? Honor, honor, them. honor them. What are the citizens supposed to do to the king? Honor. honor. I just love the divine image of God stamped upon his social order. Well, let's look at this next one, purpose. What is the purpose of the state? What did we see in Romans chapter 13? What do we find here? What is the purpose of the civil authority? One, you recall, he said, to punish evil. And second, to condone that which is good. Look at the context here for just a minute. What is the context of Romans chapter 13? Romans chapter 12. Let's read a few verses back in Romans chapter 12. And be wary of blurring spheres here for a minute. Verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So do we have a conflict here? God's word says that you are not to take revenge but to leave room for God's wrath. Well, we turn to Romans chapter 13, and what does this say about the civil magistrate? That he is an agent of God's wrath. 
He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Do you understand what God has instituted here? To you and me, who are not civil authorities, you are not to take revenge. A lynch mob is wrong, absolutely wrong. Leaving room for God's wrath. And where is that in God's institution here? Delegated to the civil authority, who is the agent of God's wrath, who does not bear the sword for nothing. Now, if God has delegated to the king the power of the sword to punish evil, can you understand why this sphere can become the most monstrous of spheres, if it is unchecked. Yes. By the way, in this delegation of authority, have you ever wondered why policemen wear uniforms? Why they wear badges? Why they take an oath of office? When I was in the Air Force, I wore a uniform. I took an oath of office. Why do we do that? The policeman cannot bear the sword. The military man cannot bear the sword unless he has been properly delegated that authority by the one to whom God has properly delegated him that authority. That is why we wear badges and take oaths of office and wear uniforms. It signifies that proper delegation of authority to bear the sword. So if the civil magistrate has been given... These two purposes, to punish evil and condone what is good. Then what does that imply to us? What is the implication here? There's good and evil. That there is good and evil. The civil authority better know what it is. The civil authority better know what evil is and what good is. That is exactly right. If he does not have the proper basis for calling something good or evil, I can tell you very quickly what he will decide what good is. And good will be exactly what God warned us about in 1 Samuel 8. It will be whatever benefits the king. The basis of civil authority is fundamentally in the notion of ethics what is right and what is wrong. He rules then based upon law, and every law is based in an ethical notion, answering the question, what is right and what is wrong. So what is law? How do we view law today? Well, let's look. You might not like the law, but you've got to take into consideration all the people that it affects. We are our law. Law is the rules that you follow for the benefit of all. The laws are there to keep us safe and to keep us in line. Evil. Law is evil. What is law? Any law that has no spirit behind it, we need to get rid of it. Sometimes, honestly, I think laws are set to put people in a position not to move forward. Law is if you got enough money. <laughs> Um, I believe people have the right to, to say and do whatever they want, but 
just like a little child, if you give them license to do whatever they want, they grow up to not be upstanding citizens. Law is a system of social contracts. Ideas to the ultimate good of making our nation better. I think there are issues of power and money, status, that end up sort of skewing the way that our government works. Even as recent as 1967, in some states, it was illegal for there to be interracial marriages. Well, St. Paul says in the Bible that the law kills and the spirit gives life. If our government was going to be a better government, what would it look like? If the government was run the way I wanted, I don't think it would work out. I wouldn't know anything about what to do or how to run it. Well, it would be much smaller. It would do the things that are mandated constitutionally and not whatever the popular edict of the day is. Government should be of the people, for the people, and by the people. The same issue of whether or not we feed poor people becomes an argument for like a week. Well, they're still going to be hungry a week later. <laughs> you know? Why is this an argument based on, you know, what side of the fence you fall on? If it was my government, it would be different than nothing. I wouldn't change that military a bit. Keep on going strong. Space, I'd keep that going strong. Taxes would go to things that were more virtuous. Lower income housing, I would change definitely. Ideally, they would go back to a system where we didn't have to pay to go to university. I once heard that some politician um, had an indoor rainforest built for himself in Iowa. Um, where I personally feel that the government can do better is if we were to redefine freedom. I think that they make some rules without thinking. I'd take care of ourselves before I'd be helping some other place, to be honest with you. Well, we got enough starving people here. When governments become controlled by the rich and the powerful, then I think governments become evil. It would be a government who truly listens to and represents the interests of all people. If we were to have a little more discipline on people that were out of line, I think that would cause a little more control, a little more civility, and I think give us as a country a little more integrity. Everything that's going on is going on for a reason. The government's not supposed to be perfect. There's going to be only one perfect government. It's not here yet. I think the government is pretty good the way it is doing now, and they make some bad choices at times, but uh, they're doing all right so far. I don't know that there is any area that evokes as much passion and emotion as we find in the area of politics and government and so forth. That's interesting to me, and we'll come back and talk about that next time on our next tour. But something has happened because the question before us is really the question of whose law is it? And where does that law come from? Because if the state begins to decide that it is the source of the ethical norm, then we will soon find ourselves in one of the most terrible situations of all because the state bears the sword. All around the world and throughout history you can see the atrocities that have been committed by this sphere. How did we get there? Well, Robbie's going to help explain that for us. How we got to where we are today, it has not happened without warnings. That is for sure. If I were to take one hinge on which this slide was hanging, I would say it was uh, Frederick Nietzsche 
the German philosopher, when he popularized the phrase, God is dead. And uh, Muggeridge then said, if God has died in the 19th century, he said, then uh, we are going to live with either megalomania or erotomania, the drive for pleasure or the drive for power, the clenched fist of the phallus Hitler or Hugh Hefner. It's exactly what happened. Going back even slightly before Nietzsche, Charles Darwin, in his Descent of Man, Darwin had said that if his naturalistic framework were taken as a scaffolding for metaphysical extrapolations and judgments and so on, he said the violence that would break out would be unparalleled. Because if naturalism is all we have, man is nothing more than nature, uh, then we have got no moral framework to look to. He, he talked about the violence that would come. Nietzsche said the 20th century would become the bloodiest century in history because of the philosophical ramifications of the death of God. So how did we get here? We got here starting off by killing God, then by killing ethics. Now we are killing man. You follow what's happening here? When we began to reject God as part of this system, and the king is no longer responsible to him, then the king is very soon going to begin to determine what he thinks is right. And it has resulted in the most difficult of atrocities to even imagine. Millions and millions of people destroyed, burned, murdered, buried, Strong point for today. How many of you are familiar with some of these numbers? You know, a lot of us over the years have become familiarized with these numbers. <clears throat> As I was looking at this list, what I'm trying to help us understand this morning is that at the top of this list, you could write another line. At the top, it says USA, 54 million. See, we don't tend to look at ourselves in that light. Right? We take ourselves off this list. But the Holocaust that's happening here in the last 39 years has wiped out the populations equal to four whole states. Those are people we'll never meet until we get to heaven. Those are people that we have no benefit from. Those are creative people. A lot of them that we don't have the benefits of what they might have brought to society or to their families. Right? So we, can't, we can no longer leave ourselves off this list. And in fact, in this list, we're at the top. It's hard to conceive of those numbers. But they've come from this sphere, disconnected. Rummel, in his book, Death by Government, said almost 170 million men, women, and children have been shot, beaten, tortured, knifed, burned, starved, frozen, crushed, or worked to death. Buried alive, drowned, hung, bombed, or killed in any other of a myriad of ways, governments have inflicted death upon unarmed, helpless citizens and foreigners. Even Voltaire, those who can make you believe absurdities, can make you commit atrocities. That is what happens when you disconnect yourself from any kind of absolute truth. Without truth, there is only manipulation. Because truth is dead, as Nietzsche saw clearly, there is only power. Now, if everything's power, then we're vulnerable to being manipulated. The pathologies that exist within this sphere 
are huge. The problem with the pathologists in this sphere is that it ends up with mass graves. And all kinds of other atrocities that Rummel was talking about. So, gazing upon this sphere and we think about the pathologies, we looked at Uzziah. When the king becomes powerful, he soon begins to think that he can rule over any other sphere that he wants. First Samuel, God gave us the warning as to what would happen when the civil magistrate begins to believe that he is God, taking a tenth, taking uh, the first fruits, oppressive in his taxes. I want to deal with one of these pathologies called the rise of the state. And in order to do that, I want to take you back for a minute to our third tour and answering the question, who is man? Do you remember at that time we took a look at Maslow and we took a look at Rogers in their statement about who man is basically good and perfectible. That brought us to this issue. Why is there evil in the world? Rogers says, experience leads me to believe that it is cultural influences which are the major factor in our evil behaviors. Maslow then said, sick people are made by a sick culture. Healthy people are made possible by a healthy culture. What did that lead us to in terms of um, a humanistic view of man? Basically good and perfectible. Mental health can be attained by getting in touch with yourself, self-actualization. But it was the social institutions that were the problem. Social institutions are responsible for man's evil actions. And that is why we have the kind of social actions that we have today. Because as soon as the state begins to believe that it has the right and the obligation, if these are the problems, we will invest power in this institution to help gain control of those institutions which are causing the evil in society. And the state then begins to rise in power and begin to think that it does have the right to breach the sovereign boundaries of each of those spheres. Sphere sovereignty is gone, and we have the rise of the state. And when the state begins to rise in power, it no longer observes any kind of sphere sovereignty at all, but begins to assume that it has the right to absorb all of those institutions underneath its control and power. And that then brings us to a great conflict. What is the conflict? What is the problem? It ends up being an ethical problem. The biblical point is not that our problem ultimately is an intellectual one. It's a moral one. That's why we appeal for relativism. Because if there, if there is no objective truth, if there are no objective standards, then it's okay for me to live however I want to live, according to my preferences. But if there is a God, and he's normative, and he has a law, then he says no when I want to say yes, and I have a conflict if I could just get rid of objective truth, get rid of objective reality, then I can live however I want to live. If I can just get rid of objective truth, then I can live however I want to live. What is the conflict here? What is the problem? What do we need to get rid of? God. God. 
he becomes the problem. When the state begins to rise in power, his restrictions, his ethical notions now become the problem. And we need to remove him. Now, you know you can't remove him, but the state will begin to act as if he is no longer there. And when the state begins to act as if he is no longer there, then we begin to view the state in a little different way. Look at Hegel's comment about the state. The universal is to be found in the state. The state is the divine ideas that exists on earth. We must therefore worship the state as the manifestation of the divine on earth. And consider that if it is difficult to comprehend nature, it is harder to grasp the essence of the state. The state is the march of God through the world. Now, I would submit to you that that is exactly what is going on. Now, we don't bow down to some statue, but we begin to act as if it is God. And we change the sphere of God and man now to state and man. That the state becomes that which we turn to. To answer all of our problems. The state begins to assume that it has the right over all education. It begins to assume it has the responsibility for the poor. The state begins to assume that all ethics now are bound up in the state's declaration of what is right and wrong. It assumes it will take care of the needy. Of course, using your goods to do it. It will determine what wages can be paid. And it will determine what marriage looks like. And on and on it goes. The state rising up and assuming authority and power destroys these institutions. Father Sirico, the head of the Acton Institute, has an incredible insight as to what is happening to the family as a result of the rise of the state. The welfare state has become a nanny state. And I think that is, that is very sad to see the state substitute itself for the family. I don't believe that it's just the lack of these things that exist in families and then the state uh, creates these things to meet the needs. I think it's gone beyond that. I think what has happened is the state has begun competing with the family. And you find that, uh, you know, almost explicitly in the kinds of programs uh, that, in effect, invite men out of the home, that uh, provide everything from A to Z for women, rather than situating them within the context of families. I think the great competitor to the family today is the state, the welfare state. Do you understand what he is saying, what Father Sirico is saying? The state then begins to compete with that sphere that God has created and the purpose and the responsibilities within that sphere. When the state begins to stand into that, and for various reasons, the family begins to be destroyed. When the state begins to act as God, and we then begin to think as God's people that the state is going to provide for me, and do everything for me. We have begun to change him not only from the state that God designed and the state as God, but we soon begin to look to the state as our Savior. To care for us 
in every way. The Humanist Manifesto says no deity will save us. We must save ourselves. And that is primarily embodied now within the power of the state. The next thing that happens is the savior of a nation state is found not to be sufficient to save us. And that is why we are now looking more and more to a global state to save us. If you are not aware of what is being taught in academia today, then you will not understand just how pervasive this notion is that we need a global state. It is huge. The Humanist Manifesto says, We deplore the division of humankind on nationalistic grounds. We have reached the turning point in human history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and to move toward the building of a world community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. Thus, we look to the development of a system of world law and a world order based upon transnational federal government. That is the normal outworking of this worldview. Where does our salvation come from? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. What a contrast that is to Hegel who says, no, the state is the march of God. It is your Savior. It will take care of everything that you need. The salvation of the righteous comes from the Lord. He is their stronghold in time of trouble. We look increasingly more to the state to be our Savior rather than to the Lord. Why did the elders ask for a change in the form of government? It's corrupt. Because the current form was corrupt. Warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. And then what was their response to that warning? But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we would be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Do you understand how critical these words are that they are saying? Look at them. A king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Those are special words. Do you remember when Moses was up in the mountain and the people came to Aaron and asked him to make molten gods? They said, come, make us gods who will go before us. That is quoted in Acts. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. What does this go before us mean? Well, it is everywhere in the scripture. God told his people, I am the one who will go before you. The Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. There were five attributes that marked the decline of of Rome at its end, amounting love of show and luxury and obsession with sex, including homosexuality, freakishness in the arts, masquerading as originality, enthusiasms, pretending to be creativity, and increased desire to live off the state. To turn to the state as your savior. God said to Samuel, it is not you they've rejected Samuel, but they have rejected me. As their king. One of the key issues that I enjoin you to look at and to look out carefully am I wanting the state to do something because it simply benefits me and I do not care if the state steals from someone else? For me, 
Is that the biblical role of the state? Is that crossing a boundary? Those are the questions that we should be asking ourselves. We have the privilege to live in a nation here where we have the privilege to intercede and intervene in the laws that are made. And when we begin to join those who begin to look at the state as the giver of all good things, do we then enter into partnership with the state when it begins to violate God's law? Those are the questions that should be before us. Father, we know when we look back over the landscape of the role of the state and the rise of the state throughout history, of the ugliness and atrocities that are there. Father, we pray that you would show us, lay before us, your design, your call, your boundaries, that we might honor the king, but that we might also stand and point a finger when it's time to say, you do wrong. This far and no more. May we not be afraid. May we be like the courageous priests who came before Uzziah and said, you do wrong. Even though the threat was there to themselves. Father, let us not shrink away from doing what is right, doing what is good. In Jesus' name, amen. As we draw to a close today, I want to read to you what I see as part of the largest problem in this whole issue. And actually, it's written by a pastor named Lawrence White, who was the pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Houston, Texas. He wrote this in 2010, and he addressed it to pastors all across the nation. As a Lutheran pastor of German descent, I've always been haunted by the parallel between the failure of the Christian church in Germany to effectively oppose the Holocaust and the failure of the Christian church in America to effectively oppose the Holocaust of the unborn. In both instances, the root cause of Christianity's fatal disengagement was a failure on the part of God's pastors to boldly proclaim God's word and rouse God's people to faithful action. The pulpits of Germany and of America remained silent because the men whom the Lord of life had called to proclaim his word failed to discern that the slaughter of millions of innocent human beings was not merely another political issue, one among many. This single issue was, and is, a direct inescapable confrontation between good and evil. This is not a matter of patriotism or politics. There was and is only one Christian position on this single issue. It constitutes a test of faith. That is to say, by our response or lack thereof, we either affirm or deny the authenticity of Jesus Christ and the integrity of his gospel. 
After 38 years of killing, with nearly 50 million infants brutally done to death, abortion remains nothing more than a minor distraction in our political debate. That's because our politicians have learned that nominally pro-life Christians will settle for an occasional promise or platitude while we focus on what really matters, the economy, taxes, foreign policy, etc. And that will never change. The killing will never stop until God's pastors find their voice and call God's people forth for war against the powers of death and darkness which are destroying these little ones. No more compromises, no more delays, no more choosing the lesser of two evils or politics as usual while babies are dying all around us. Only when Bible-believing Christians resolve for the love of Jesus and the glory of God never to vote for any candidate in any election who is not unequivocally committed to ending abortion. Not until then will the killing stop. But we as God's pastors must sound the call. This was almost like throwing the glove down in front of the pastors of the nation saying it's up to you. And so I stay committed to the cause this morning. And I'm going to show you a website up here. Uh, You may want to jot this down. This is a 33-minute documentary that is recommended by uh, Pastor Lawrence White. It's called The 180 Movie. You can find it there at uh, www.180movie.com. You can watch that in your own home. It's a documentary comparison of the two holocausts. And really, it demonstrates the ignorance of most people on the street concerning the issues that we face. I'm going to ask Tim and Janina Schmidt to come, visiting from Seattle, and sing for us and close, invite us to close the service together with them. Grateful for them being here this morning. Just think this is a part of God's plan today. I feel the responsibility this morning, the weight of fighting this battle is upon us. It's still upon us. We're coming into this political year. We're going to hear lots of things. We're going to get those promises and platitudes. And we've already seen a couple of guys shift. You know, they'll say one thing until they get up the next notch up, 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 and then we'll be forgotten and I know plenty of Christians, and I do know a lot of them, that would say, I'm a one-issue voter, period. If they will not defend life, I will not vote for them. And we often get thrown the choice of the lesser of two evils. We come down to it. And things have to change. We are responsible. Amen. And the state has risen up. We've allowed the state to make the decisions. And this is what we get, an American Holocaust. We're way ahead of Stalin in killing our own. And I've been to Europe and I've stood over the graves. I've stood over the ditch rows where people dug their own ditches and their own graves and then were shot to fall into them within stone's throw of their own home. They say, there's a saying that even the, t- even the trees cry in those places. Rows of trees with slumps between them where the bodies have been decomposed over the years. And you stand there and you think, of the millions and millions of people who are killed by their own government. And then I bring it home to our peaceful little America where silently, tomorrow, today, on average, 3,700 people will be executed without a choice. It's not a point of condemnation for you if you've 
have this in your life, ask God to forgive you. Let his mercy flood over you. We pray right now, Father, that you would grant forgiveness to us for our participation in this Holocaust. Lord, and individually, if we've been involved in one, Lord, we pray that you'll bring healing to our lives. Forgive us our sin. Renew us. Make us your children. Give us a new heart and a strong ability to defend the unborn. Lord, turn us around where we made a wrong choice and led to this sin. Help us to make right choices and to help others make right choices. But release us from the burden, Lord God. Release us this morning from the terror of our past. You came to redeem us and restore us. We thank you for this today. According to your plan
only one who can. Jesus, hear my land. Send your Holy Spirit according to your plan. Come and issue this morning. It could be about some other need, physical need. Your body needs somebody to lay hands on you if you're sick. The Bible says we'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. If you need to come, let's just sing this one more time and chorus together. Just come. Leave your seats and come. As we begin to pray for those who need prayer, just you can feel free to be dismissed. There's probably a little coffee left out there or a donut or two if the kids didn't get them all. Thanks for being here this morning. Jesus,